Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I am your host, Rob Walling. Each week on this show, we cover topics related to building and growing startups using an ambitious yet a sustainable approach. We're not willing to sacrifice our health or our relationships to grow our company, and we view relentless execution and a long-term mindset as things that we value. And this is episode 521. Speaking of long-term mindset, we've been doing this show for over 10 years and today we are tackling some news stories. This is a startup roundtable episode where I bring on a couple guests and we talk through topics today that relate to bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped startup founders. Today I have Tracy Osborne joining me. Tracy's been on the show many times. She is the program manager at Tiny Seed. So we work together on a day to day basis. And she is the founder of a startup called Wedding Lovely that she worked on pre-Tiny Seed and shut it down shortly before joining us. My other guest is Anar Volset. He is my co-founder in Tiny Seed, so it really is a trio of Tiny Seed folks here today. And Anar co-founded Tiny Seed with me. He does a lot of the investor relations work, works in the accelerator as well. And he also founded Discretion Capital, where he helps SaaS founders who are doing a million dollars or more in ARR sell for revenue multiples. And he's been on the sell side of SaaS for quite some time. So it's a good panel discussion today. We cover topics ranging from is a recession impending? We talk about the Google antitrust and how that may or may not impact our types of companies. Talk about work from home, Dropbox going to permanent work from home, and a handful of other topics. Before I dive into that, I got some good feedback, both constructive and some positive feedback on Tiny Seed Tales. The final episode of season two goes live here in just a couple days. But I heard from JJ who said, love these episodes, great stories and excellent content about the challenge of being a startup founder. From Dan, he said, I love listening to this format of the podcast. I find them really interesting and entertaining as well as hearing some of the smaller scale problems that bootstrappers face. They remind me a little bit of the first Gimlet series, which I thoroughly enjoyed and wish was still around. And then from Kyle, I got some feedback said, I liked the general idea. I did stop listening to season two after a few episodes. I'm a little fuzzy as why I stopped, but I want to say it didn't seem as if I was going to learn that much from the company or from the episodes. I'm thinking what would have been more intriguing is if you were in more of a coach role and I got to hear you coach them more. Again, if I recall correctly in season one, Craig was further along and he was experienced. So you coaching him seemed less critical, but in this one, I felt like I wanted to hear more of your voice on their journey. So really appreciate everyone who wrote into me. This was just a sampling. And again, I've received both positive and constructive feedback on it. And that is what I'm looking forward to figure out, you know, A, should we continue to produce the Tiny Seed Tales episodes? And B, what changes we should make to the show format as we move forward? And with that, let's dive into our conversation. Tracy, thanks for joining me on the show today. Yeah, happy to be here. And are you as well? You're very good to be here. It's good to have the band, I was going to say back together, but this is the first time the three of us are appearing on the podcast. I think it's it's kind of cool. I mean, you both have made multiple appearances over the past 12 to 15 months, but uh, I haven't done mint too many of these. You know, I've, I get a lot of requests to do the three and four person, you know, basically news roundtables, but they, they tend to be pretty hard to plan, the logistics are tough, and then it's oftentimes 
hard to find topics, enough topics, right, that really relate to our crowd. Because we can talk about stuff that is broader news. Jason Calcanis does this with great success on, on This Week in Startups, but he's relating it to the world, you know, and he's talking about trade policy and, and this and that. And I find that it, it can sometimes be hard to link that back to boots on the ground, microconf, startups for the rest of us, tiny seed type startups. But I do think we have a good docket today. And the first topic we're going to cover is it's actually a listener question about the economy. And it's from an anonymous listener. And he said, early on in the pandemic, you described a broad revenue trends along the lines of about 20% of companies that you were invested in or, you know, had the financials of our way down, 60% had a minimal difference and 20% are way up. And this question asker says, hey, we actually landed in that 60%. Now, once I, I actually said that off the cuff one day, and then I came back to it like a week later, and I actually looked at the numbers, and it wound up being closer to 15, 70, and 15% for what it's worth. But give or take, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter. He says, so here's a question. It's six or seven months later. What does that picture look like now? I suspect that a lot of us in the, that initial 60% group are starting to feel signs of a real recession. Maybe a few extra customers churn. Maybe customers still renew but get lower users. The effects aren't huge, but they're there. My sample size is small, but I'm seeing it. It's not falling revenue, but it's flat where I had expected growth. There's a lot of reasons why people don't want to admit this stuff. Revenue failing to hit forecast is not a good look. Disappointing results are hard to face. No one wants to consider the implications of that really for themselves or for others. If other startups out there are seeing signs of this, I think it might be helpful for the community to know what to look for and what to do about it. My business is fine and we have a broad customer base, but I'm curious to see what you're seeing out there in this space. Anar, you want to take this first? Sure. So my view is, is things haven't changed all that much. I still think the breakdown is roughly what you said. I think particularly SaaS businesses that are, are serving industries that are still hurting, whether that's travel or schools or, or you know restaurants and things, I still think they're hurting. I don't think it's quite in the same deep freeze as it was you know, back in March, April timeframe, but certainly like, I think, I think a lot of those, those companies are still hurting and I don't think it has expanded necessarily. I do think the growth on the other sort of 15% side, I do think the growth spurt that came for like the winning companies has slowed down a little. Like we saw some companies in particular who like maybe before COVID was growing 30, 40, 50% a year, all of a sudden grow hundred percent in three or four months because, you know, they were at the forefront of, you know, whatever, work from home or, or something that's sort of COVID, COVID related. I do think we, we're starting to see a more normalization for these guys' uh, growth rate. They, some of them are, are back to where they were at 30, 40. Some of them are sort of coming down off the, off the peaks and doing perhaps stabilizing at, a, at a, a sort of a higher base. I think certainly that's true, for example, with things related to e-commerce and, you know, delivery things and, and stuff like that. In the middle, I, I, I don't know, actually. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure whether I feel, bad, I, be, I feel bad for the question asker. I, I sort of want to say, yeah, that's what I'm seeing all over. But that's really not, not fully what I'm seeing or at least hearing. Like people are still tentative. Like they're still like, well... Budgets are harder to, to get on and, and like approvals are a little harder, but I'm not sure that I've seen a slowdown into the fall. I don't, I don't think from the people I talk to anyway, but you know, it's a relatively small sample size. So, Tracy, you have insight into at least 23 companies across uh, Tiny Seed Batch 1 and 2. What are your thoughts? Well, one thing I was wondering about this question in terms of timing, and I was going to pose the question to you two, was, you know, the possibility of, of things sliding to a recession, but also like worrying about that happening while we're also going into the holidays 
like what are the kind of drop in growth? Is that something that happens with startups? It's something that happened with me and my previous startup because we were so seasonal. Seasonal, yeah, exactly. Or a seasonal startup. And I was wondering if, you know, if people are like, oh, should I be worried about a recession? If it'd be worthwhile to go over kind of the what you should see going to the holidays, keeping in mind it's holidays during COVID and so things are gonna be weird, versus how do you see if if any way how to see if it's a recession and how that's affecting your business? Yeah, my thoughts there are obviously if you're in e-commerce, Black Friday is coming up. And so any type of e-commerce SaaS or software or whatever is going to be going up and to the right over the next month. And then it'll, you know, it'll drop down in Q1. I saw seasonality in all of the companies that I've run, but it was most, it wasn't seasonality. That's too strong. I would see dips, usually dips in growth, especially if it was SaaS, right? It wasn't the revenue dropped, but it was the growth would slightly decelerate. We get fewer signups right around tax day in the US. So mid-April and then around December. I was I was counted it lucky if December grew at all. And if we stayed flat, that was fine. But I really wanted to have a good November and then we would come out swinging pretty hard in January. And we often launched big things in January. Yeah, that's exactly what I was kind of getting at. So I'm curious to see how things would happen in January, also depending on the you know, US politics, how, where we are in COVID. Basically, what I guess what I'm getting at is like, is it too early to say about recession being that there's other things going on? Yeah, I think the right the uncertainty of COVID, the uncertainty of U.S. elections, and the holidays coming up, I can see them making people uneasy and not wanting to purchase. So the question asker's business, his business flattening or not growing as fast, could be justified by that. But like Anar, I'm not seeing. I mean, I'm I'm invested in between Tiny Seed and my independent stuff. I have 35 investments, and I'm not hearing that they're slowing down. I'm not seeing plateaus across the board. Or, or slowing across the board. And so I think there's kind of two questions here. And, and one of them I'm answering with, no, I, I don't think everything is kind of flattening right now yet. The second question I think he's asking implicitly is like, do you think there is a recession on the horizon? You know, when we look out three, six months. And for me, it's a big, I don't know. Because I've thought, I mean, I was talking in 2015, 16, there has to be a recession coming. There was 89. Well, no, there was one in 93. There was one in 2000. There was one in 2008. And I kept thinking, I mean, it's not that it's every seven or eight years, but I kept thinking, this has been going on really, like the stock market's really overpriced. When I sold Drip and had all this cash, I remember just agonizingly investing in the market because I was like, I'm waiting for this thing to be cut in half any day. And that really didn't happen until COVID. It happened in January of 2016. There was a big correction, but it came back the next month. So there's no recession there. And the next big hit obviously was when COVID started, but that was just such a, it was so short-lived that I don't know what's coming. Well, it was short-lived. I mean, it, there's sort of a binary outcome. If you start, I don't know if you turn into a stock dis, you know, discussion program here, but like if you look at the, the companies that are listed as, as on the stock indices, you see that like basically the reason it's recovered is because of the big tech firms, you know, like Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, those Zoom, those kind of things. They've done really, really, really well versus like the Russell 2000, which are the small caps companies that are listed. They They really haven't recovered. It's like they're still down 20 20 30%, you know. It's it's been it's been sort of a a story of two different two industries, which is also partly backs up my like my view of the the market and this relates to M&A too in the software space. Like it's been very strong. Like if you're in software or anything that's sort of semi-positive, like you've sort of had tailwinds for at least the last few months now. 
today, the, I think the Dow is down 3%. And there's obviously a lot of uncertainty around the elections. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the vaccine and things. But certainly, I think the last three, four months, if anything, I've seen, I've seen tech firms have sort of tailwinds through the last few months, at least. Yeah, but I think you're you're combining two things because you're talking bear market, bull market and stock prices and I'm thinking more recession or not. So I'm thinking of SaaS companies just getting started to several million in revenue, mostly bootstrapped. Are they still growing? I'm thinking more even about the gym down the street or the maybe gym's a bad example, but a store, a retail store here in town, you know, are they, they don't necessarily care about the stock market. Obviously it impacts the broader economy, but you know, when I think about it, if I was running a SaaS company today, whether I was doing 100k a year or 5 million a year and I was again bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped I would be slightly cautious right now because of how much uncertainty there is and none of us can predict a recession but there are a lot of things that can go wrong in the next 6 months and me personally I'm fairly risk averse especially when I'm running a company that I don't want to lay people off I don't want things to go to zero I don't want to miss payroll whatever it is I would be thinking about being a little bit conservative and having perhaps a little more of a cash cushion than I would have in the boom times. I mean, you go back a year, you know, you don't need so much of a cash cushion if you're going 10, 20% a month. Right now, I would be thinking about what is my plan B, C, and D if things start to go sideways here? What if growth flatlined for six months? Are we good? What if? I'd be asking myself some what ifs and figuring out which of these could be company impacting. Yeah, I think that's fair. And buy some Bitcoin, I think, obviously. Oh my gosh. Tracy, you own crypto? <laughs> my husband is very into crypto. Yes. I am not, but he is. I'm, I'm, it's fun being adjacent. I'm sorry, I'm going off a tangent here, but it's fun being adjacent to that world, but then listen to Anar <laughs> and his and his thoughts. Anar <laughs> is just in it for the, for the big score. I definitely own crypto. People who listen to the podcast know that I dollar cost averaged in and I went on these big runs because right now it's up. I do a little bit of dollar cost averaging out to kind of feel good about that. Our next topic is actually a story from the New York Times and it is about the Google antitrust suit. So the US accuses Google of illegally protecting a monopoly. I think the don't be evil moniker that Google had for many years. Uh, I think a lot of us, especially small startups who have experienced, whether it's direct competition, whether it's being stepped on accidentally, whether it's having AdWords constantly be more expensive, whether it's having our our keywords be not provided, whether it's having them not send us traffic because they're doing snippets on at the top of the homepage. Um, I, I definitely think there is a sentiment in kind of early stage startups that certainly... Google's doing stuff that may not be fair or encouraging of the ecosystem. Tracy, what are your thoughts on this antitrust suit and how do you think it impacts the startups in our community? Google, it just feels like it owns everything. It has its fingers in everything in tech and you can't avoid them. If you, you know, people are still talking about, they're superhuman, there's other email things, but everyone's like, oh, but Gmail's the best. And they're like, okay, I want to talk about advertising and Facebook advertising and Reddit advertising. But really AdWords is a thing you have to, to start out from. And, you know, you get a new phone and it's Google is on your phone. And I think that's what you said earlier was that the that's a lot of this antitrust cases about the phones and everything coming with that bystander. I am a fan of any kind of breaking up at least a little bit because I feel like Google being in all these areas and being having its fingers in everything is slowing or preventing some amount of startup innovation in those spaces. And so what would we see if Google wasn't the, the number one in everything that we do? 
And so if it was somewhat, some way of, of breaking it up and allowing for more innovation from people, where would tech be if Google wasn't the behemoth that it is right now? Ditto. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, with, broadly agree with that. I mean, I think the specific case of the DOJ brought against Google is, is pretty narrow. Like if you read it, there's, like I said, they're, they're saying like, okay, it's antitrust. They're protecting their search monopoly by paying, you know, billions of dollars to Apple and whatever to, to make Google their, their default search platform. But broadly, I agree. I mean, it feels a little bit similar. It's like Google is walking towards the situation that, you know, Microsoft was in. You know, years ago, back in the 90s and, and, and things, Microsoft was sort of the big bad wolf and, you know, they'd squash you or outcompete or buy you or, or do whatever. And it's, I think it's funny that, like, basically Microsoft got sued by the DOJ for antitrust when they were 22 years old and, and Google is actually 22 years old this year. <laughs> so it's almost like a college graduation thing, like, congratulations, you made it. Here's a lawsuit from the DOJ. I mean, you look at what, what happened with Microsoft when they did face that sort of thing. I do think that's overall been good for the for the startup ecosystem, that that sort of stranglehold that they had on tech. I mean, there's two ways to look at it, I think. Either like, you know, the fact that they got sued and things opened up some innovation. But then the flip side of that too is like, people had to work around that monopoly to a large degree. And that's why you get web apps and things when you did in the early 2000s. So I don't know. I think it's sort of one of those really big market moving things. A direct impact on sort of bootstrap software entrepreneurs, I think is more TBD, to be honest with you. The big thing that I've seen Google do over the past 15 years as I've been more involved in the ecosystem, as I started running AdWords, the thing that I've seen them do that has been anti-innovation or anti-startup directly is this slow kind of titration or this decrease in the amount of data that they give to people who are trying to market their businesses. So when they started pulling keywords out of Google Analytics and they give not provided, right, instead of the actual keyword people were using to search your site. I mean, before not provided, I was a small business that was marketing on the internet and, and I was either doing SEO or I was buying AdWords, but it would tell me, hey, they clicked through this keyword and they converted. And so this keyword converts really well for you. Well, they pulled it out and it was, they give some bullshit excuse about it being privacy. First, it was only, uh, it was like if only if it was over SSL and then they just rolled it out to everything. And what it did is it forced you to buy ads from them. Because if you buy their ads, they give you the keyword. You know what I mean? So how is it? So, so And that never made sense. And there was a bunch of uproar and Google said, we don't care. Then they slowly pulled all the data out of their keyword tool is completely useless now. They said they would never sell search rankings. But if you look at the, just search for any term, the top three, four, five positions now are all ads. The organic number one is oftentimes below the fold, depending on how many things you have on your screen. And you can't even identify the damn ads. Like it's a tiny little box. Like my kids, I had to teach them that those were the ads. My mom still, I've watched her using a computer. She clicks on the top result every time. And I'm actually like, oh, you just cost that store money. She's like, why? And I was like, well, you clicked on their ad. And she's like, how is it an ad? It's a top search result. Like people don't understand. So that's not what this suit is about, right? This suit, to be clear, is about the default search engines on these mobile devices. But it, it's all intertwined. It's a, like Tracy said, they are everywhere. And do I believe that they have used monopoly-like powers to just throw their weight around and, and not care what, what the market says? I do. Oh, yeah. I mean, just ask like Mike Tabor, like the hoops he had to jump through in order to get to what effectively is the default email client in the world. That's that's something that Google can do. I mean, I mean, all the big all the big boys do it. I mean, like Twitter is like famous for like yanking their developer API after the developers help them become famous and you know become popular in the first place. And so, 
yeah, I, I agree with that. Our next story is about Dropbox. I'm reading this on businessinsider.com. By the way, all of these stories we will post in the show notes. So the headline of this story is Dropbox will let all employees work from home permanently as it turns its offices into WeWork-like collaborative spaces. Shouldn't they just say co-working-like collaborative spaces? Why does it have to be WeWork-like? There's a lot of other... That's interesting. That's like saying Kleenex instead of tissue or Band-Aid instead of a, a bandage. But anyways, so in essence... Tracy, is this just the rest of the startup world, the Silicon Valley startup world, finally catching up to what bootstrappers have been doing for the past 10 years because we didn't have the money for offices? Yeah, no kidding. You know, there's like a lot of negative effects from COVID and the effect around office spaces. And there's just these norms that, you know, once you got to a certain size, you had this office space and what was it? Like Yahoo used to let you work from home and then Marissa Mayer became the CEO and she rescinded that because it was like, you know, that was the norm and that like Yahoo was innovating before, but then they're using that as an excuse to bring everyone back in when she was in there because she said that everyone works better together. And I think bootstrappers know that you can get just as good work done remotely, but all these companies were facing this this norm that was pervasive. And then finally with COVID, it's forcing people to make this change. And now, now these big companies are waking up to this idea of, hey, you know, and you're not having your employees drive an hour to and from the office. They have simpler lives. Maybe they're getting more work done because they're faced with less distractions from being in the office. I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out in the next year, especially as, you know, hopefully as COVID gets better and maybe things start opening up again. But I'm hoping is that these, like Dropbox, these other companies will also have these policies put in place and that employees' lives, hopefully, will match something a little bit closer to how bootstrappers have learned to work from home, or at least hopefully have learned for, to work from home. And are you, you live south of the Bay Area. And so you're kind of, I bet you're seeing lower traffic now that the people aren't working from home. Do you feel like this is going to change the landscape of these big campuses? I mean, I know Facebook, my brother and dad worked in the electrical contracting industry in the Bay Area for years, and they were part of doing work on the massive Google campus, the massive Facebook campus, the massive Cisco campus before that, you know, all that stuff. But is that done at this point? Do you think most companies are going to wind up going at least half remote or remote permanently? I don't know. Like, I'm sort of torn on this whole subject as like the resident extrovert here. Like, <laughs> like I certainly think like some some of the the traditional views. Like, you know, I, I was on some venture capitalist on Twitter making a big deal about the fact that they're no longer going to make it a requirement when they invest that this or like a qualifier that a company has an office before they invest, which I always thought was 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 really stupid. You know, on the other hand, I I do think like there might be a backlash. You know, once the vaccine's in place, like because. I feel sort of cooped up <laughs> just just in my home office and like not seeing people just day to day. And I, I do think there's value in like interacting directly face to face with people. But I do think there'll be a fundamental shift in sort of the expectation, I think probably mostly from the employee side. And, and it'll probably start with like tech companies and things and then trickle down where it's like, okay, maybe they'll be there a portion of the time. You know, they're, they'll, maybe there's, they work from home two, three days a week and then the office a couple of days a week. And I think, I think what Dropbox is doing is smart because I think that sort of facilitates that sort of a, that sort of a thing, which I think in, in general is a good thing. I mean, we're already seeing like in just in the real estate, real estate markets in the Bay Area, the shift where it's like, yeah, it's not a good time to own like a one bedroom condo in downtown San Francisco because everyone is just moving out and buying cheaper, bigger places or elsewhere. So I do think it's definitely a trend, but do I think it will become like everything is like remote first and offices are, are sort of going the way of the dodo? I, I don't really buy that 
but you know, I guess we'll see. I think in general, commercial real estate is a bit screwed, particularly in California. If like Prop 15 passes with the tax increases and things, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, it sort of follows on from, and just to be ranting here a bit, it sort of follows on from the the fall of malls and shopping malls and things, because more and more of those places are now, you know, e-commerce is taking over, and like they're just empty malls everywhere. And like, what are we going to do with all that real estate? The question sort of is the same with. You know, even if it's a small trend, like say you say 20% of companies or 20% of employees don't go to offices regularly, that's a big, that's a big drop, right, in the occupancy rate of these places. And what are we going to do with all this office space that, <laughs> you know, isn't being used anymore? Well, couldn't we convert some of the housing? Well, that's what I think. I, you know, there's a mall in town where I live and it's like, well, I look at that, I'm like, why isn't that converted into like an apartment complex at this point? Like, because I don't, I don't think that uh, this is going to fill out again in any way, shape or form. I don't see why it can't be like a hybrid partial apartments and partial shopping restaurant complex. But, you know, that, that stuff takes time, I guess. Yeah, for me, I've always been a believer that a lot of the companies that have been remote, the larger companies, like let's say a base camp, or uh, I can't necessarily think of another one off the top of my head, but a company with 50 to 500 employees that is remote tends to be a lot of introverts. And they do tend to hire people who work well remotely. And we haven't done an experiment this large, to your point, Anar, with companies that have maybe didn't hire specifically for remote workers or have more extroverts, just more of extroverted workforce. I, I think we get the balance right with Drip. When we were in Fresno, there were 10 of us and there were some people that were remote or fully remote. They were in New York and there were in other states. That's just because to f- find the best people, that was what I had to do. But everyone in Fresno, we came into the office two or three days a week and that third day was optional. And so I saw Derek and I saw Anna and I saw my coworkers. And then when we sold, we moved to Minneapolis, it was three days a week, mandatory. And then I think it was Monday and Thursday, everyone had the option and most people just work from home. And that is such a such a good arrangement, especially if you have to do any type of maker time, because when I'm at home, I would try to block off and not have as many meetings on those days. So I'd keep the mornings to myself and I would have zero interruptions. And in the office, I got the social time. We did a lot of whiteboarding, but I get interrupted all the time. And I just, at a certain point said, I'm no longer a maker. It's just not going to happen in an open office space. And so I hear you on that. I mean, I don't know if if there will be transformation of these office spaces into a living space, if they transform, if they all transform into escape rooms and trampoline parks, like I see in a lot of the warehouse (laughs) districts, you know, but that's the thing. I think it will hurt commercial real estate. Like the rates on a startup office space are higher than the rates you can charge a trampoline park or whatever innovative new entrepreneurial thing does come out of this. So I think there there will be a hit, but we'll just have to see how back to normal things get once there is a vaccine and things start to uh, start to clean up. No, that's true. I mean, like, but like, even if you just take your example, right, if, if the majority of companies end up adopting what you're saying, that's two days out of five. That's a, that's a very low load, you know. Yeah. And then we'll have to figure out, do you, like, we just paid the rent as if we used it because we had it. 30 days a month, right? We had it 365 days a year. We just didn't use it all the time. So that was a decision we had to make. Well, you, you could end up in a scenario, right, where like two companies split it, right? So that the, you have Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and or maybe ha- both of them come in. Everybody comes in on Friday and it's a big party, right? You can see those type of situations. Yeah, or I could see, I mean, the fact that, you know, WeWork has had some major issues and has tanked pretty bad. But can you imagine 
if there were a more successful, more sustainable model, that a lot of these are just turned into shared office space, into more of a WeWork model. I wonder if, I wonder if there becomes opportunity. There's that old phrase of like, I want to be the second buyer of everything because the first buyer, the first investor puts a ton of money in, they burn through it, they prove out the model. And then when that goes out of business, I can buy it for pennies on the dollar. And now I have this asset that there's opportunity. And I wonder if there isn't going to be that in commercial real estate in terms of office space. Our next topic is, it's an interesting one, and and listener, follow me along on this, because this isn't as relevant to someone who's running an extreme early stage startup, but I know more than one founder who has hit the point where they're doing, let's say, two to 10 million in ARR, and they go to try to raise money, and they don't want to go the venture unicorn track, but they do want to have some liquidity perhaps for themselves or to pump into the company to, to continue to grow. And... There's a couple things that tie into this. And, and the bottom line is due to the regulations in the US, it's virtually impossible to do that. It's not worth it because of the high expense of going public in the US. First is in Canada, there's the Toronto Stock Exchange. And in Australia, there's, I think it's the Australian Stock Exchange. I forget what the name of it is. But in Toronto, if your company's market cap is $4 million, you can go public on their exchange. And the fees are between $10,000 and $200,000, depending on how much money you raise. So it it's actually quite inexpensive. And you could imagine a, a, a SaaS app, much like you would meet at a microconf, you know, who's doing three, four, five million a year going public, which sounds, the phrase going public has such gravitas with us. And it's like, well, only GE and Apple and, and Google are public. These are massive companies, but I don't think that should be the case, actually. And so, Aynar, you want to walk us through a little bit? I mean, we, we have a couple topics to touch on here. One, why the hell is it so expensive and hard to go public in the US? And then the, the real topic that leads us into is these things called SPACs, which are special purpose acquisition companies. And they've been in the news quite a bit lately. I've heard them on this week in startups and I've heard you know there's a Forbes piece on them and they are suddenly becoming kind of a popular way to go public in the US yeah I mean it is slightly strange I mean because I, I think I think most US investors don't really look abroad like they don't they just think this is the way it's become and you know the, the trend over the last 10 15 years has become that even though there's perhaps not you know, heavier regulations than there already were, you end up in a scenario where a company like, you know, Airbnb is going public after like maybe 12 years of existence instead of the the more typical, which is, you know, a decade ago or plus ago was four or five, maybe six years. And I think it is slightly weird to me that it's become this like, you have to be like one of a small number of unicorns in order to go public because like you mentioned, that's just not the case in, in other countries. Like there are dedicated exchanges like the TSX Venture Exchange in Canada, there's, you know, being Norwegian, I know there's one called Maskud in Norway. There's a couple of ones in Germany. You know, we're basically like people understand that if you're buying stock on this, this exchange, then yeah, there's some compliance and things, but these are much riskier bets than your GE or Google or Apple or things like that. And like on a philosophical level, I don't really understand why, why that isn't possible. I mean, because in terms of like investor protection... Well, investors can go on the Robin Hood app, like I did, and buy a bunch of put options on United, thinking that, you know, Donald Trump is going to announce some sort of a vaccine before the election, so it'll jump up. And you can lose all your money, like I did, in like a week. And nobody's stopping you. There's no, like, accreditation process or doing that. So the stock market, as we in part have seen through COVID, is, is to a large degree, is sort of a, a good way to lose a lot of money very quickly. But fundamentally, what I think, and I think one of these things should exist in the US, where it's like, okay, if you get a certain a certain size, like you say, 5, 10 million ARR, 
why not go public? Like companies like that go public all the time abroad. And, you know, it gives access to, to retail investors who don't have access to the private markets. Like fundamentally, one of these things, like the fact that things take longer to go public means that the average investors who don't have inside access don't get to participate in the value creation there. And I think actually like SPACs, like to, to circle back to the topic at hand, like SPACs is sort of a sort of a symptom of this problem. Like SPACs are basically like empty shell companies that people put together and they go public. So they list the, basically an empty company and the, the company basically says, we're going to sell $500 million worth of stock in our company, in the shell company, and then turn around and use that capital to buy or acquire a private company. And effectively, it's like a, you know, a backwards IPO almost, like the company becomes a public company by virtue of being acquired by this shell company. My view is that that's sort of a symptom of like how complicated and how long it's taking for all these companies to go public. And, and so I think, I think we'll start to see more and more of that trend. And, and I, I'm sort of pro it. I, th I don't think there's any reason why more companies shouldn't be public so that more investors you know, get access to, to the value creation that obviously happens there. Because like, you get to 10 million, like you say, like what's your options at this point? Well, it's to sell to private equity, right? It's to a portion to private equity for some liquidity and things. But are they really giving you the best price? <laughs> you know, like, wouldn't it be better to, to have like sell 20% of your, of your stock to, to the public and, and not have basically one boss who may have their own sort of view of how you should grow and what your strategy should be going forward? Yeah, I think SPACs are kind of a, a loophole or a workaround to an what I would say is an overly complicated system, overly regulated, overly complicated system. I certainly think there needs to be investor protections. Yes, the laws, the laws that are governing all of this were most of them were written in 1935, you know, and they haven't really been updated very well. There was the Jobs Act that did a little bit for crowdfunding, but really there are still a lot of problems with with what's going on today. Tracy, you've you've kind of witnessed it firsthand as we've been raising funds for Tiny Seed Fund 2. And Anar came back to us because he was doing research and he said, if you raise a essentially a venture fund, which is what Tiny Seed's raising, and you have you're raising more than ten million dollars, the highest number of investors you can have in that fund. These are accredited investors who are you know loosely either have a million dollars or more in liquid net worth, not including their the primary house, or they have income of two hundred thousand dollars a year for the past two years, or three hundred thousand if they are married. So these are people. That's the definition of kind of a sophisticated investor in the United States, even. And then you can only have 99 of them in your fund. So if you want to raise, for example, a $40 million fund, you need people to give you essentially your minimum investment has to be $400,000 per it has to average out to that, which is kind of crazy, right? Because if you could have, let's say you could have a thousand investors, well, then you could drop your minimum way down and you could make it more accessible to so many more people. And I think given our love of what we are doing and our belief in this space, that we would prefer for more people to be able to participate. But I'm curious, had you heard of this 99 investor problem before now? And, you know, any other thoughts on it? This issue really gobs back to me as someone who is an investor, have always dreamed about becoming an investor and kind of a baby baby investor. And coming into Tiny Seed, I had no idea about what went into raising a fund and being a part of a fund. And so Tiny Seed's thesis, which we put on our website, is something obviously working here. I totally agree with it. You know, we're talking about Tiny Seed being a, a basically an index fund into B2B SaaS. And so when you're talking to people who are can be an accredited investor, have met those requirements you had before, but maybe just barely meet those requirements. A lot of people are very into the mission we're doing. And a lot of people 
don't have $400,000, but they're like, hey, this sounds like a winning bet to me. I'd love to put in 5,000. And it sucks to be like, no, we can't. We can only talk to the people who already have enough wealth that they can just blow this massive amount of money into tiny seed. And it it creates this like problem between wealth equality in the way that people who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, have a hard time to get to that level of wealth to be able to throw around that amount of money. And so when we have something like Tiny Seed, again, totally believe in what we're doing, think that we're going to be a success. I want to help other investors, especially from disadvantaged backgrounds, also be a success with us. And we have to constantly tell them no. It just drives me absolutely up the wall. And the fact that the 99 investor problem, as I've Brad Feld uh, wrote a blog post about this, if you Google for it, exists. And it's frustrating because in 2018, President Trump signed, I think it was like a startup act or whatever, that was hopefully to solve this problem between 99 investors being allowed to invest to be in a fund by opening it up to 250, if I recall. But that only applies to funds that raise less than $10 million, which is ridiculous because it's the funds that are raising more than $10 million need to have more, like, a number of investors who were able to invest in it. So it's, I feel like it's, it's a huge issue. I think it leads to the restriction of wealth growth to these already wealthy people. And it's like, I can go to a casino and I can spend $5,000 in a casino and no one a bad eye, but I can't take $5,000 and try to invest it in some larger fund, which arguably, you know, because they're kind of indexing, arguably might have more chances of success. That's, not allowed for me because those funds are restricted to only large investors. It's just bananas. Yeah, I, I obviously agree. I mean, I have, I talk to investors all the time and I tell them, I'm sorry, like my, our minimums are our minimums and people get frustrated and they're like, you know, I want to put $50,000 into this. Often they're, they're successful operators. So, you know, they're people who maybe bootstrapped a SaaS business, got it to a million or two, sold it. And now they want to put some money into, you know, the area that, that they understand, like in part to, in part to support the community and, and in part to um, obviously make a return. And I think it's the crazy thing is it's sort of even worse than that because technically speaking, there's like two definitions of investors. There's like, well, there's more, but like the main ones are the accredited, which is what you're saying. And really like, then you're a pretty wealthy person if you if you qualify for as an accredited investor. But there's there's a higher threshold called a qualified purchaser. And, and basically what a qualified purchaser is, is somebody who has at least $5 million in investments. Now that's obviously wealthier than, than someone who is quote unquote, just an accredited investor. But the funny thing is that you can actually take up to 1,999 qualified purchasers. So what that means is our minimums and, and any fund's minimums can be lower for the wealthier investor, which doesn't make any sense. Like I can take $5,000 from you if you want to, but only if you're worth at least 5 million bucks. If you are quote unquote only worth say two or 3 million, well, I'm sorry, but then I have to take, you know, 400,000 or whatever, whatever the minimum for the fund size is, which uh, that, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know that I've ever read a good reason why this 99 investors, like why the limit is 99. Like I can understand why, you know, it should be like a thousand or you don't want something that turns into a scam that gets, you know, a million investors caught up in it. But 99 just seems really arbitrary. Yeah, if it was a million, then it'd be a public company, right? If you had that many right, shareholders, exactly, it's yeah. essentially public. So, But you're right, there's a big difference between 99 and a million. So we'll see what happens. I'm kind of just throwing my hands up and being like, yeah, we need to 
somebody needs to figure this out because I do believe this is hurting innovation. Much like the high cost of healthcare in the United States, I think the regulation around going public and I think the regulation around 99 investor limit on, on funds, I think those three things are the things that I have experienced firsthand over the past you know year or two that are seriously impacting the startups that I'm working with, not only with Tiny Seed, but just all around microconf and you know the people listen to startups for the rest of us so hopefully there's we can do something about it and i would be remiss if i did not recommend people go check out tinyc.com/thesis and if you click through there you can of course send anr an email you fill out a form and he gets an email and you could chat with him to hear about the tiny seed thesis and to hear about you know more about what we're up to and and how we're raising that fund our last story of the day is from reddit and it's a warning about glassdoor And the person says, for the past few years, I've often defended Glassdoor as a useful resource as part of any job seeker's overall job seeking toolkit. About a year and a half ago, I interviewed with a company that had horrendous reviews. And this is like a thousand word essay, so I'll kind of summarize from here. But in essence, there were a lot of negative reviews. The person took the job anyway. The job was not good. And the the environment was toxic, according to this poster. And they wound up going back to... uh, Glassdoor and posting a negative review that then not only got removed, but then got removed. Every one of this person's reviews on Glassdoor were removed. And then they they imply at the end of their post that, that they've heard that Glassdoor has supposedly done a, like a minor pivot into brand management so that perhaps it's becoming less reliable that it's trying to get rid of negative, negative reviews or something to that effect. I think the question I have is maybe twofold. And we'll start with you, Tracy. Glassdoor has tended to be a bit of a mixed bag, but I have definitely, I've used Glassdoor quite a bit for salary recommendations, which I find to be pretty reliable. And I also used it back when I um, I looked at lead pages Glassdoor as an example, when we were talking about being acquired by them. And there have been companies where I have tried to research whether they have, whether I think they have a a positive or kind of a negative reputation with their employees. I have always wondered, I mean, much like Yelp and much like Amazon reviews, these things do get gamed eventually. And I've always had it in the back of my mind. I wonder how reliable these actually are. Do you have much experience with Glassdoor? And, And what are your thoughts on this whole topic of can these be gamed? Do we think that as something gets big, eventually it just does lose its value because they can't control the potential review spam. (laughs) It's just funny to me because I've never used Glassdoor other than for salary uh, information, like you mentioned, because a previous company I worked for had Glassdoor reviews and they were terrible. And it was the funniest thing to me. And I was when they rebranded, and I believe one of the large reasons why they completely renamed and rebranded the company was because their Glassdoor reviews were so terrible and they needed to have some way to like wipe the slate clean. So this was about seven or so years ago. So it was when Glassdoor was like, I think that there's probably a lot more systems to game it now. But back then that was like, you just had to wipe the slate clean in order to get rid of those past reviews. And I have had checked them recently and they have better reviews than before. So I assume that they made some management changes in addition to rebranding the company. But yeah, it's definitely has been gamed in the past. <laughs> a very complicated matter like that. And absolutely think it's being gamed now. I think I read that article, that Reddit post, and they were mentioning, it's just like Yelp, right? Is like, all these companies are going to be very concerned about their, their reviews because it's going to vastly affect the amount of the quality of the employees they get. And 
savvy employees are going to read bad reviews and they're going to stay away. And so now, yeah, it's these companies are going to be doing whatever they can to either with Glassdoor or otherwise to kind of scrub those reviews just like Yelp. And I think what's going to happen just like Yelp, I think people are going to be using it less now that these things are coming more to the forefront. But I'm curious to hear what you you two say about this. I'm wondering if does this open up the door, the opportunity for a new Glassdoor competitor to come in and have a better algorithm from the start or some other way of validating this stuff that then becomes reliable for a few years and then the same thing happens. Einar, you you have thoughts or experience with Glassdoor? I don't I don't have much experience specifically with Glassdoor, but I, I do think in general these things tend to, you know, like anonymous reviews of things. I'm <laughs> it's I think it's prone to gaming in general. I I think you're right. I think there's probably a way to make Glassdoor, you know, not so easily gameable, but but it doesn't surprise me at all that companies will want to try to do it just because like I said, one of the hardest things, you know, okay, recession talk aside, is to get people to to want to work for you, like to get quality people to do it. And if you have a horrendous review on Glassdoor that says this is the worst place in the world to work, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think in general, but it's like, you know, it's a little bit, like I said, it's a little bit like Yelp reviews. Like, do you really know? Or is it somebody who just like, they, they have a real aversion to, I don't know, creamer in their coffee in this particular way that this cafe does it and decides to make it their mission to take this cafe down? Like, that's hard to know, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And I think if you're obviously, if you're listening to this, you're probably pretty early stage, you know, maybe zero employees, maybe 10 or 20 employees. I do think, at least for now, that people will go to Glassdoor. And, and if you have no profile, that's probably fine because you can just say we're so early that we don't have one. The danger is, is if you don't have a profile, someone leaves and they write a negative review and your only review is negative. So I would consider having some type of presence on Glassdoor if you are going to be doing hiring and you do have at least, you know, a couple employees, you can ask folks, hey, can you just post a review here, honest review of your experience here. So I don't know that this needs too much more uh, commentary or thought, but I, I do think that the the problem of these kind of big review and especially anonymous review, because that's the thing, right? Yelp is you can effectively be anonymous because you could, over time, you can buy accounts on Yelp that already have re- reviews. You could set up a new one, leave a bunch of positive reviews and leave negative. I mean, there's there's ways you can do that. And these things just tend to be really hard if it's not tied to some identity. I got to say, being a Yelp elite in the early days of Yelp, where it was pretty sweet in the Bay Area, I say as former Yelp elite. <laughs> Wait, what was what's a Yelp elite? <laughs> oh, man, you are not in the know. I know, right? I was like, how does you not know this? They had this whole program that if you'd left enough reviews, you'd be invited, if I recall correctly, you'd be invited into this special Yelp Elite program. And then you would get invitations to restaurant openings and special events. And the idea is that they would give you a bunch of free food and alcohol, and then you would give give positive reviews afterwards. So there was this one summer where, and this is quite a while ago for me, this is like good 10 years ago for me, where like pretty much every weekend I was drinking for free based on being Yelp Elite. What? Oh my God. You were like famous. So Tracy Osborne, you are at Tracy Makes on Twitter. And Anar, you are Anar Volset. We will link both of those up in the show notes. Anar, thanks so much for joining me again on Startups with the Rest of Us. Thanks for having me. And Tracy, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. 
Really appreciate Tracy and Anar taking the time to record this with me. I hope you enjoyed this episode format. I've done just a handful of them over the past several months. If you really enjoy this type of format, please write in questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or hit me up on Twitter at Rob Walling and let me know what you think, if you think they could be improved or if you'd just love to hear them more often. I've only done them maybe once a quarter, both due to kind of the lack of news stories that are maybe discussion worthy in our community, but also, you know, they're a little more effort to set up. But I am willing to do that if I hear resounding, yes, 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 you know, this is something that I'd really love to hear. So thanks again for joining me this week, and I'll be in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.